0: Hello everyone and welcome to Greater Than Code. I'm Jamie Hampton and I'm here with Coraline Ada MP. Hello
1: everyone, I'm also really happy to welcome Astrid County to the panel today.
0: Thank you
2: Coraline and I would like to also introduce my friend Janelle Klein.
3: And I'd like to introduce Jeff Reichman. Jeff Reichman is a technologist living in the Houston area. He graduated from Temple University with a BA in English and an MA in creative writing. He's a principal at January Advisors, and in 2016, he co-founded Sketch City, a nonprofit community of 2,500 people who apply technology and data to public problems. Very awesome. Welcome, Jeff.
4: Hey, thank you all very much. Appreciate you being here.
3: So one of the ways we like to start off the show is by getting a little background on your origin story. So could you tell us a little bit about your special power and how you acquired it?
4: Well, uh, I uh, have moved across the country for most of my adult life. I grew up in Philadelphia. I lived in Santa Barbara, California for a while, Washington, D.C. for a little bit. I moved to Houston about eight years ago, and uh, I love it here. This is my adopted hometown. I I can't imagine living anywhere else. And over the last eight years, uh, I've kind of gone from introvert to extrovert and started going to meetups and meeting people in my neighborhood and in my community and just gotten to know folks. So if, uh, if I have a superpower, it might be just meeting lots of people and understanding the power that happens when you unite them.
3: How did you go from introvert? to extrovert, like making that shift, because I'm I'm sure like a whole lot of the listeners are very far on the introvert camp. So what was the process of kind of making that transition?
4: Sure. Uh, well, I love reading books, you know, I got two degrees in English, and uh, I love spending time alone. And what I realized is, it's, it's more about how long I can be around people. And so I tried to orient my life around, I, I have a, a particularly high threshold where I can really be on, so to speak, for about five hours a day. And then I need, you know, the rest of the time of my work time to think and reflect and respond and strategize and whatnot by myself. And so protecting that balance in my, in my work life has been really helpful. And I also decided back in 2011 that I was just going to go to meetups. I was going to go meet people. I didn't care who I was going to meet. I was just going to shake people's hands and hear about their stories and learn about them. And what ended up happening, especially in a place like Houston, is you meet the most amazing people and you get really into their stories and and where they come from. And you you learn to, to really love people on a, on a particularly human level. And so I've been doing that now for about seven years. And it's just taken on a life of its own, especially with these relief efforts.
1: I used to be really, really shy. Um, especially when I'd go to a conference, I would just feel overwhelmed by the press of people. And I started playing a little game with myself where I would say, I'm going to walk through the room and talk to the person with the most interesting shoes or, oh, I'm gonna, that's great. yeah, I'm going to find the person with a red shirt and I'm going to talk to two people with red shirts. And um, that really helped me sort of come out of my shyness and eventually become a lot more gregarious.
0: That's a great game. I actually did something a little bit similar when I was nervous at a conference recently. I took a photo, a selfie of myself, and posted it on Twitter and tagged it with the conference. And I was like, "If you can find me, like, come talk to me and give me a sticker or something like that." And like, dozens of people were like, "I saw you on Twitter. Here's a sticker."
1: Great. That's really cool, <laughs> so Jeff, how did you make the transition from being an English major? I was an English major too, but I didn't finish to being a technologist.
4: Well, I was really fortunate. I grew up with a computer i'm I'm getting up there in years now and and uh, I had a computer in the home as a very little kid, so i've always been familiar with technology. My brother and I would take it apart and put it back together. I love books. And so I was an English major, but, uh, when I needed to get a job, I got a job with a technology startup in California, uh, cause I could write and I could write proposals and we did business with governments. I just started picking up and doing what was necessary. I got interested in coding. I realized that, you know, it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. And I could get a lot done with some very basic skills. And anytime I have the block of time to dedicate to it, I try and, you know, kind of get my skills a little bit better. And, uh, yeah, it just was kind of a natural transition. Uh, a couple of years ago, when I decided, because I'm able to work for myself, when I decided what kind of projects do I want to work on, I really made a conscious decision that I never want to lose those tech skills. I always want to be refining them. And that's, that's been awesome.
1: I looked at the readme for the, for one of the projects we're going to be talking to you about today. And I think, For the Harvey API, and that really demonstrates the value of being able to write and being able to communicate clearly, and how important that is in a software project. I
4: wish there were more writers involved in tech teams who can help document and market and uh, communicate, so that developers and designers can be left to their job and left alone by people who are constantly knocking on their door saying, "Hey, you know, I got to get this to this person," or "I'm talking to the press. What's this?" English majors are are the glue that holds it all together.
1: Totally agree.
2: So Jeff, you mentioned that the job you had at the startup had something to do with the government. Can you talk a little bit more about how you got started working on projects related to government issues?
4: We were a a small startup that provided parking software. So parking permits, parking enforcement, parking tickets, that kind of thing. And, uh, I was a sales rep, uh, for part of my time there. So I would sell to local governments. I'd respond to RFPs. I get to know how the purchasing process works, understand how, like they verify vendors and things like that. And, uh, I got really interested in how local government works because they do a lot. If you work in parking, I mean, parking is an auxiliary service. It makes money. It's something that people pay for. And then that money goes somewhere else. It doesn't go back into parking. And it's vitally important. If parking fails, you know, everything else fails. If you can't park your car, your experience is ruined. So it's a critical frontline customer service function of the city. And it gets very little respect, yet it processes tons and tons of money. So I, I really got insight into the types of people who work in positions like that. These really good people who take their jobs really seriously You know, that, that kind of spidered from there a few years ago as I started to work with the city of Houston and really started to take that mindset of understanding the types of people who work in government and how hard they work and respect for them. And, uh, that's helped me, uh, work with teams to uncover new things that we can all work on as a community.
1: It seems like elected officials get all of the attention, but like you said, there are a lot of hardworking and very dedicated people who are Mm -hmm. actually doing the work of government. And it's really interesting that you got to spend time with them and empathize with the jobs that that they're doing, too.
4: Thank you. They work really, really hard. Uh, Elected officials deserve a lot of credit. It's an impossible job. You know, you have to shake hands with everybody all the time. Uh, You have to be nice to everybody all the time, even your trolls. You have to watch everything you say and do and be really careful and win a popularity contest every once in a while. And so those people are... Really important and powerful for spreading a message and setting a tone of values and agenda. But they'd be nowhere without the thousands and thousands of other people who fill the potholes and answer the 311 calls and do the, the daily work of government. At least for the city of Houston, it does so much that we just take for granted. The fact that our garbage is getting picked up, you know, after the largest rainfall in American history a week later is amazing.
0: So Jeff I'm curious about how your experience working with these kind of government people affected when Harvey first hit and your reaction and how you wanted to step in and do something about that like how how was that related in a in a way
4: Any working relationship you have to build trust and trust comes with time and with, you know, successful delivery of projects. And I think that our community, the Sketch City community, has built up a lot of trust with government. You know, we have a lot of people who are collaborating with government officials on projects. We have City of Houston, you know, taking some of our projects and embedding them into their own infrastructure. Uh, We have a really good working relationship with them. And that's helpful because what we want are ideas for things that are going to make an impact. And right now... The people who know what's going to make an immediate impact are the people working for the city and working for all the relief agencies and the relief efforts. So having that trust existing for several years makes it a lot easier to simply sit down at the table next to them, watch what's going on, and start coming up with ideas for how we can help. And then we've got this huge tech community, both Houston and and the globe, but especially Houston, that. You know, put everything aside. Their power stayed on. No water got in their house. They said, I'm fine. What can I do to help? And I'm sure the rest of the world has seen these stories. It's true for the tech community, too. We're the fourth largest city in the country. We've got a ton of people, and it just came together beautifully.
1: What is Sketch like City, great. Jeff?
4: Sketch City is... um a local Houston nonprofit community of technology and data people who believe that tech and data play a role in public decision-making. All too often, elected officials, department directors, agency heads aren't necessarily thinking through the data end of things, or they don't have good data, or they're not trained on real-time data or modern data methods uh, for analysis. And we seek to advance that and educate them and do work alongside them to help give them the best information they have to make a good decision.
3: I've been listening to you talk about this kind of theme that's emerging about what it means to respect people. I've recently been emerged in this kind of CEO investor club culture, which is very different from hanging out with engineers. You know, it's like it's like the what the world looks like on the other side, right? And I can't help but think about all these parallels between the community and government and respecting the people that do all the things and the same kind of dissonance of us versus them that we have in our organizations with, you know, our business leadership versus engineering culture and that same us versus them kind of clash. And I'm curious what kind of things that like, what kind of parallels you see because you're so involved on both sides. I'd really love to hear your perspective.
4: Yeah. I think that that parallel definitely exists in government. You have lots of silos. You have people who say, you know, that's not my job. I'm not curious about this technology thing. You know, the tech people handle that. So those same silos exist, but you know, I I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and I'll talk to a lot of new entrepreneurs who want to start a software company and they say, I I just need a coder. I just need to, to get some money and hire a coder. And I, and I, kind of look at them and say, well, one, if you're doing this full time, just teach yourself to code or figure out a way, give yourself a budget of a hundred dollars and get yourself to a prototype. How would that work? And there really is this ability for some people who have an interdisciplinary background, even just very basic technical skills. Like I've built a website before. So I know the process of thinking about what I want and then learning how to do it or adapting a theme or a template. Just going through the very basics of building those tech muscles gives you respect for the intricacies of the job and how detail oriented it is. And I think what's great about the city of Houston is that we have a mayor who is a worker. He's a lawyer. He's a legislator. Now he's an executive and he has deep respect for all of his employees and has a genuine interest in how the job gets done and how to make it better. And I think that type of intellectual curiosity, it naturally leads to respect, because as soon as you see, I mean, you can sit there and say, well, somebody is just that their job is just to be a garbage man and pick up the garbage. But when you start thinking about, well. You know, how are they doing that? What's their process look like? How physically taxing on the body is it to, to do a route? How do you route the trucks? What does dispatch look like? How do you keep them safe? What are the, all the things that go into that? You start to realize that this is a pretty well oiled machine and there's a lot of those machines. So to just to get back to your question, I think those silos exist because of ignorance around how hard a particular job is. And once you just pick up a shovel and start shoveling for a little while and your your shoulders start to burn, that gives you a respect for people who do that all day long.
1: kind of reminds me of what the onboarding process at my current job is. I'm on a team that supports warehouse associates. And for the first entire week of my job, we actually went to the warehouse and did various jobs in the warehouse so that we would Understand their needs and understand what their working life was like and be able to create solutions that would make life easier for them. And I think that comes down to what the theme that that's emerging here of respect for people who do the work and how important, how important that respect is. Do you think executives don't have respect for people who write code? Or do you think that it's just, um, this mysterious black box for them? Does that lack of respect go both ways?
4: I think it can in government, especially respect is one component of it, but just the way that bureaucracy is set up, you have to have elected officials say, I want my bureaucratic people, the people who are going to work here when I'm gone to take risks and to be rewarded for taking risks. And if they fail, that's okay. And ultimately it comes down to, you know, the leader setting the tone to say, figure out a better way to do this. Otherwise, you know, People who work in government are risk averse and they're not going to try something new if something already works. What we're seeing now in Houston is unprecedented scale of disaster and needs and things that these people who already have full-time day jobs now have full-time night jobs too. And it's gotten really complicated. And in times of crisis, that forces a type of innovation. Like if it fails, that's fine. At least we got it out there and we're trying and we're supporting and we're getting better. Because in emergency situations, you fail. You fail constantly. And it's a terrible, awful feeling to know that you can't hit home runs every time you come to the plate because there's real stakes. And I think when you're in an environment like that, it gives you some freedom to innovate technologically that you otherwise might not have. And those innovations do two things. They Number one, they prove that Tech innovation exists and that it can be done and that it can be done quickly and cheaply and in a way that, you know, highlights new solutions. And number two, it proves that technology should have a seat at the table. That if, you know, you're thinking about citywide housing relief, there's ways in which low tech temporary solutions can really help. And what the city of Houston in its wisdom does is it makes sure that they pull in people from all of those different areas and there is a seat for technology at the table.
0: I really like um, this talk about innovation and I'd like to dig into that a little bit deeper. Can you tell us about some of the innovations that you've been seeing and that you've been working on in the wake of Harvey?
4: Sure. We uh, have been working with a lot of different organizations that have been coordinated crowdsourced dispatch and crowdsourced verification of information. When you are displaced, when when your house floods, you go to a shelter and that shelter is going to feed you it's going to give you some fresh clothes maybe it's going to give you medical supplies and those shelters are ad hoc it's a church basement it's a you know an elementary school gymnasium it's places that are run by volunteers that don't have experience handling hundreds of people coming through their door and so everybody kind of makes do and people generally will start organizing through google forms and google spreadsheets but there's limitations to that especially when you're at the scale of You know, a disaster like Harvey. And so what we ended up doing was linking with all of those teams that were coordinating the dispatch and the Google Sheets. And we built an API. It's called the Harvey API, and it covers uh, the full gamut from rescue to shelter, to the needs of the shelters, to ordering the products on Amazon to routing them to particular organizations. And you can pull from different components of that API as necessary. So if you wanted to launch a shelter map, uh, a real-time shelter map, because you know the shelter map that the city has isn't very good, you could build one that's 10 times better drawing from the same data. The biggest concern in an emergency situation is that wherever you get your data from, it's up-to-date and it's accurate. And that's why we've honed in on that API And we're already starting to put it to use for the preparatory efforts uh, for Hurricane Irma.
2: So, Jeff, one of the things that you said was that emergency situations show that technology does need to have a seat at the table. Can you talk a little more about some ways in which technologists can be helpful? Because it may not occur to some people that during an emergency, you you might want to tap into your local technologists as well.
4: Totally. So there's a couple of ways. I'll give you a simple kind of easy example and then kind of a crowdsourced example. The first, and forgive me for getting wonky, this happens when we talk about government stuff, but the city of Houston is engaged in a bunch of different ways to get FEMA reimbursement. One of those things is volunteer hours. So if you log your hours for volunteering for Harvey relief efforts, the city can verify that and submit it for reimbursement. It's done all on paper. So we created a digital form and a website called reportyourhours.com. It's a prototype, but that was a need that was brought up in a meeting, and we were able to turn it around in a couple of hours, send it through all the approval channels, and get it out there to people who had been volunteering all through the holiday weekend. It's Wednesday now. This past weekend was Labor Day weekend. So we wanted to capture that as soon as possible, especially for people who maybe weren't part of a coordinated relief effort at one of our shelters or with one of our NGOs that's that's running those things. So just by being at the table and hearing this is a big need, it could mean millions upon millions of dollars in reimbursement for the city. It's hugely impactful. Here's a paper form, figure out the logic, get a site out there. So you draw a little bit from you know, backend database development, a little bit from front end form management and a little bit from marketing. And you get something turned around quickly. I think the tech having a seat at the table enables that to happen. But beyond that, the second example I would give is called the Texas muck map. And that was a team of developers that built a map that as soon as it, as the water recedes, you have to pull out the carpet and you have to cut out the drywall as fast as possible so that mold doesn't grow and whatnot. And that's called mucking. And there's a lot of people who are in their 70s. There's a lot of people who are disabled or have disabilities that that don't allow them to do that work right away. And so we created a map. Basically, I need you to muck me out or I'm here to muck. That worked really well over the course of the weekend. It was a need that the community had. The government platform really wasn't mobilized yet. It was just getting started. And so we were able to get something out into the community that they could use. And then the platform absorbed that data and we merged with them. So being able to have a team of people, just tons of people talking about solutions together and not duplicating efforts, and then coming up with things that can serve as interim solutions, I think is really, really helpful.
1: I'm kind of curious how you organize a group of 2,500 technologists, without running into problems with egos or with bike shedding or with platform arguments. <laughs>
4: <laughs> it's a, you know, it's, it's tough. We have those things. There's room for everybody. We're open. The leadership team of sketch city are the best people in the world. I mean, these are, these are people that I think so highly of, and you know, you attract flies with honey, so to speak. You know, when, when you set a, a tone, a particular way, then I think, you attract the right people. So we're platform independent. We don't make recommendations about particular technologies. We just want to connect technologists with real public problems and policy people who can explain the nuances of it. And I think policy people and tech people have a lot in common in that they live in the details. And if you don't work in policy or if you don't work in tech, no one wants to hear about those details. But the two can share details with one another. So the community management is a little chaotic. But, you know, the teams know how to self-assemble. We have some, I mean, the people in our community are incredibly capable. They're project managers, they're CEOs, they're senior developers in real life. And they come in and they flex their muscles and execute. So we're lucky in the sense that the people in our community are so capable that they don't really require a ton of management. We just play traffic cop and connect them to people and resources.
1: I'm really interested in one of the things you said that struck me as kind of counterintuitive, and that is that disaster opens opportunities for innovation. I would think that in a disaster situation, people would want to fall back onto the familiar, even if that's less efficient. Why do you think that is, that those sorts of situations open the door for innovation that otherwise maybe wouldn't happen?
4: Well, I think that Having lived through a disaster now, I mean, it changes you. And I'm still, it's only been a couple of days. I'm still in the middle of the adrenaline-fueled, sleepless night, you know, 24-7 work. But there's too much to do. There's just too much to do. There's too much for people to handle. The infrastructure set up to handle this kind of volume of need is not there. Even as much as we try, it's not there. We have hundreds of organizations coming together. And yes, that gets into a process, and the, the government is really good at organizing that process, but there's inefficiencies across the board. And when you have trust with your friends and neighbors and government officials, those things that they can't get to where there's a potential technical solution, they're willing to give it a try. They're willing to cut through bureaucracy to get it out there because time is essential. There's too many people in need. And I don't quite know how to describe it other than. There's too much to do and too few resources to do them. So naturally people are going to look towards technology to make it more efficient, even if it's imperfect, you know, even if it doesn't quite work right. Yeah, we want to support it, but it doesn't have to be a perfect solution. It just has to be out there and helping people.
0: As someone who's pouring their heart and soul into this right now, how do you keep yourself from just feeling overwhelmed? Like I kind of almost hear that in your voice. How do you get past that? And like, focus on doing something really meaningful which is what you're doing.
4: Well, it's overwhelming. You're in a constant state of being overwhelmed, but I think that there's a certain zen that comes along with that. I watch incredible leaders, people who are who are leading efforts far larger and more important than anything that I'm doing. And I see how efficient they are. I see how they're thinking things through. I see their flaws too, you know, it, you can you can tell. And my flaws are magnified as well in situations like this. But I mean, it goes through phases. You have an emergency phase where it's completely overwhelming. You have a, a relief phase where the volume and the scope becomes clear, and then you have a rebuilding phase. And I was really lucky that people from Occupy Sandy, people from Hurricane who work for the city for Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, you know, they jump into the slack and they pull me aside and they'd be like, "Hey, man take some time, try and get some sleep. Here's how it's going to go. In a week, it's going to be like this. In a month, it's going to be like that. And so that kind of guidance has been just invaluable. I can't tell you how much I, too many people to name who've offered that that kind of guidance. And it's it's really helpful. And it keeps you from being overwhelmed because this is a marathon now.
2: So Jeff, one of the things that you mentioned early on was how if you start working with local government, you can make a huge impact, which I think is something that doesn't occur to a lot of people. So what would be your advice for somebody who is looking to make that kind of impact for them to get started working with their own local government?
4: I would definitely join your local code for America brigade. If you don't have a code for America brigade, start one. And if you don't have an idea of where to get started, reach out to code for America, it's code and they'll help you. And it's helpful to have a person in government who also believes in what you're doing and wants to help that you can partner with and they can run the internal, uh, circles of legitimizing what you're doing and you can run the external, you know, community building stuff. And together, if you, if you are able to start a long-term relationship, it's magical. I watched from the very beginning, a, a gentleman named Seth Etter, who is a community leader in Wichita, Kansas. I used to go up to Wichita to facilitate startup weekends. And, uh, I watched him make a decision to take his development community organization skills and apply it to civic tech. And uh, he started Open Wichita, which is their civic hacking group. He got a job with the OpenGov Foundation and is leveraging best practices from across the world to his group. And from scratch created a thriving civic tech community in Wichita, Kansas. If he can do that there, you can do that anywhere.
3: It's so inspiring to me, like listening to about, I mean... The community just really stepping up and seeing problems that are like, all right, how how can we solve this? And you've got this community filled with all these fantastic engineers that can see Mm -hmm. problems and come up with solutions. And then, you know, with tragedy happening all around you, it seems like one of the consequences of that is like you've got this well of energy of wanting to help. And you kind of just need to somewhere to direct all that energy and people are willing to jump in and code, you know, and and help yeah. chip in and make a difference with the skills they have. And there's so many different things we can do with tech, you know?
4: Yes. Yes. And, you know, when we start pollinating the government with people with a community tech background, or when somebody, you know, studied computer science and then got a master's in public policy and is now an innovation analyst at a city or something like that, that's where this is going to take root. I, I'm, I mean, I'm a consultant by trade and that's how I make my money, but this, sh- this should be a core government function. This should be like within government and forward looking cities and forward looking states are starting to do this. And I, I'm thrilled that the city of Houston is taking huge leaps forward to be in that, you know, top flight class of cities innovating.
2: Do you so, think so- that every city yeah. should have a, a chief technology officer?
4: Well, they do, uh, but uh, the chief technology officer, their function is really to oversee the hundreds of applications that the city supports. So they have permitting systems, they have routing systems, they have GIS infrastructure, they have, you know, a, a zillion things, and so that's a huge organizational lift, and it's hard to do. The city has an innovation office that they just created, directed by Jesse Bounds. And Jesse's amazing. And his staff, uh, you know, Annie Pope and Stephen David and Maja Lark, they're amazing. And so they're able to kind of fill that role consultant plus technology product manager. And as that team grows, I think the city will begin to transform even more.
3: One of the things that really struck me is this idea of the knowledge being coupled with Of how to make things better and what the problems are being coupled with the people that do the work. And from one perspective, we talked about the importance of the leaders respecting those that do the work. And it also sets a precedent for in disaster situations and when we need to innovate and really all the time, we ought to find ways to sort of push decision making toward the people with the knowledge, the people who are doing the work. And so I'm curious as to what kind of ideas you might have in terms of how we ought to run things differently to facilitate that.
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, everything I learned, I learned from hackathons. So this is like a real big, long hackathon. Mm -hmm. I think that being involved in, in your civic hackathon as a participant is really helpful. Being involved as a government official is really helpful and getting to know one another and, and coming out of city hall and meeting tech people where they live and where they are. Uh, I think is really helpful. And then knowing how to scope out a project, scope out a need, build a prototype, test it, stay up all night and get something done. I think hackathons are the best kind of training you can get. I'm probably not. That's a superlative. It's probably not the best training you can get. But if you're a tech person and casually you just want to you know, prepare for something like this, your Civic Hackathon is the place to do it.
1: I'm curious, Jeff. I think that um, when a disaster strikes, a lot of people are motivated to help in any way they can. And through organizations like Sketch City, there's a structure in place to allow them to help. But how do you maintain that enthusiasm for helping local governments be more efficient when the disaster is not present? How do you motivate people to help in the communities when it's just sort of a, a regular day?
4: What's really great, you know, if you're a salesperson, you want to sell something that people want to buy. And what's great about this is that people want to help. And so the, the community that, that we've grown is this community of people who've opted in. They've raised their hand. They said, I got these tech skills. I'm curious about local government. They're not the people who are, you know, usually not the people who are protesting every day, but they're the people who say, you know what? I can make a difference in this particular way myself i'm i'm particularly passionate about environmental issues and criminal justice issues and education issues and my passions grow the more that i i do work in those fields but i would gladly volunteer my weekends every weekend all weekend for the foreseeable future on environmental data causes like that that just is so necessary and i i think about that instinct and i know that thousands of other people have that same instinct and it just needs to be uh, given a channel to be expressed in some way. So to your point, I don't think we have to keep people motivated so much, uh, as we do keeping people delivering stuff that can be helpful. And with each win, you know, more people come in and more people see what's possible from their volunteer time. And, uh, the wins just kind of keep coming as people motivate themselves.
0: We've been talking a lot about what's been done like reactively as a reaction to this disaster. But what do you hope maybe could be done in the future proactively, maybe in Houston or even, you know, something that could be passed on to other cities to kind of get things set up in case something like this happens again? Like we're looking at another Hurricane Irma potentially hitting again right away, which is terrible and scary. And what are your thoughts on on putting things into place to be like more ready in the future?
4: Yeah, well, our team is already, you know, working with the Code for America Brigades in Florida and all the volunteers over there. We've put together a document of best practices from our own experience so far and helped set things up over there so they didn't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, From a technical perspective, I think the Harvey API is um, pretty powerful. Oftentimes, people want to build a front end. They want to build a website, a central source of information. And that's good. And we need that but my passion is really around a central source of data truth. There's so much data that's collected. There's, it needs to be real time. Sometimes it's official data. Sometimes it's crowdsourced data. You know, if we can provide a backbone for that in an API that can serve it up into whatever front facing website you want to build, you want to build a map with leaflet. You want to build a map with Esri. I don't care as long as it shows the right data. So that's really where our efforts are are concentrated. And uh, that API is open source. It's on the Sketch City uh, GitHub organization. Uh, Jesse Walgamont is the primary architect along with uh, Ben Achoa and about 11 other contributors. And those folks are tired. They're exhausted from this. So what I'm really hopeful that we can do, just hand over our best practices on organizations so far and have them build on it, but also let them leverage our technology as much as they want to. My hope is that people develop on the Harvey API and that becomes either that or some future iteration of that becomes, you know, a central way of managing multiple data sources.
3: So, Jeff, earlier you were talking about handling the, the overwhelming stress that comes with an event like this. The thing that you said was that the calmness in the storm comes from clarity and understanding the storm as opposed to conquering it. And sure. that when you get people together and they have a plan and they 're executing it 's like the relief comes from that clarity instead and i I guess what i 'm wondering i I see that same thing happen in technology too mm. where you 've got chaos happening because essentially not clarity in the plan, and so it 's always like hyper stress right. <laughs> And I'm wondering if some of these skills and ideas that you've learned in the context of the community have potentially helped you in consulting.
4: That that may be. I think that it's just so overwhelming the amount of adrenaline that goes through your body for days and days on end. I mean, I'm not a scientist and I don't really know. I'm, a, I'm guessing it's adrenaline that I don't quite know how to articulate it, but you kind of have to adapt and get to a new level of normal and know that like you can't operate in this frenetic pace and this feeling like things are out of control at all times. So it's, I guess kind of yogic in the sense that you have to find, you know, your inner peace and people respond to how you respond to things. So if you're frantic, you can agitate them. Have you ever been in a meeting where people are all cutting one another off? Like I'm not used to meetings like that. I don't like meetings like that. I don't operate that way and I don't like being dragged into meetings like that. I like structured, efficient, you know, so I guess the point is, is that I, I don't stress out that easily to begin with. Uh, so I've got some good kind of mental tools for de-stressing and not getting stressed out, but in a situation that's completely and totally overwhelming, you have to trust that the people around you are working as best as they can. And everybody tries to dial down, the amount of stress. You have to take breaks for mental relief. You have to cry. You have to just release physically the agitation that you feel so that you can get back to work. Because we're ahead of schedule in getting people out of shelters. So, you know, the needs are are not as overwhelming just yet. And we're preparing for that next phase, but there's just a lot going on. So You can't waste time getting stressed about that stuff any more than you're naturally going to be stressed. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but I'd like to take that practice back into my regular life and feel stress-free all the time.
2: It sounds like what you said, which is what I heard you say, is that when everything is crazy, but you can know something and you can actually do something about what you know, that gives you something to focus on as opposed to being focused on everything being crazy.
4: Yeah. And it gives you some control. It mm-hmm. helps you control what you're doing. You know, something that I know a lot of us felt immediately after Harvey stopped raining was we felt out of control. We wanted to do something. We didn't know what to do. Uh We felt powerless and helpless as we watched our neighbors and our friends drown. And that's terrible. So I think that getting some control over the situation in whatever small way you can whether you're you know, helping the Cajun Navy with dispatch or you're you know, organizing food relief or you're building a website or you're just hanging out with your friends, brainstorming ideas, that's a really good way of dealing with what's going on and finding your direction as fast as possible and figuring out where you can best help. It's incumbent upon you. There's lots of volunteers who show up and say, I'm ready for something. Give me something to do. You got to figure it out yourself.
1: We like to end each show with a reflection on the conversation that we've had and calls to action.
2: One of the things that came out of the conversation that I thought was really interesting was the idea of using temporary projects as a means of helping. A lot of times, when we talk about technology, especially if you are trying to do some tech for good, we're thinking in a much bigger, longer-term way. And what I thought was a good thing to take away is that it may become actually more important to have the ability to very quickly come up with something temporarily to get you through the next week or through the next month so that you can make it to those long term projects that that's just as important and maybe possibly even more important, especially When it comes to some sort of emergency situation or disaster situation, because that's usually where a lot of things are falling apart and it would be great to be able to have a community that is ready to do something.
0: For me, this whole conversation was very emotional and kind of an emotional roller coaster in a lot of ways, because, you know, seeing all of the destruction and everything bad that's happening on the news has been really tough during this disaster and in general. And I think that it's very easy for the news to kind of focus on these, these bad things and have them feel overwhelming. And to talk to Jeff today and hear particularly what he was saying about, you know, people coming and showing up and wanting to help And Coraline's question about how to motivate people and when he was kind of talking about like, well, people are already motivated because they want to help. They want to be able to do something for their community and give back. And it's important to people. And the fact that he has met and worked with all of these people who all feel similarly to him about that and knowing that there's a lot of people like that out there is a really... Good thing to hear, and like a healthy thing for our community, and also for everyone to be aware of about our community. I think um, when things seem very grim, so that was kind of the the up on the emotional roller coaster for me. That there's kind of a very hopeful lining with all of these people working to help. So I felt really good about that. I think that after disasters like this, um, we get an outpouring of support. That's really impressive. And I've seen a lot of sentiment from people about how, in a way, it's kind of sad that we have to wait for some sort of disaster to happen in order to bring people together like this. And I can see where they're coming from in that way. But to me, I see it more as now that we have these people together um, working on things, we have to take that blessing and continue running with it in order to make it, you know, not sad and a really worthwhile thing that just happened to flower out of a tragedy.
2: I think it's sad that people think that people don't do this. I think there are people who are doing this. They just don't get attention until so, there's a disaster and then, yeah. and then everybody sees it. I think it's actually kind of hopeful that you're not alone, that there's a lot of people who are like you who want to do something good.
0: I think you were totally on point about... People who want to do something just needing a way to channel it. And it's situations like these that kind of provide the catalyst for that channel, not mm-hmm. the catalyst for people wanting to help. I think my reflection
3: is, is listening to this conversation, I've I've just been so inspired by just seeing how much light there is in the world. And, you know, even when we seem to kind of be drowning in darkness, there's all this beautiful light in the world around us, of you know, people coming together, people pitching in to help. And the thing that ends up holding people back is the simple stuff of like, Oh, I didn't realize that this was a place I could channel my energy. And that if, if this minimum amount of structure is set up to tie people together, to partner people with the right people, we can channel all that energy that is already out there in the world and start solving these problems. And we've got all these engineers with all these amazing problem-solving skills. And if we set up a channel to say, hey, let's sit down at the table and talk about how we can solve these problems, things just start happening. And maybe if we started knocking down some of those barriers and just making that first step to get involved and connected with the right people, maybe that's all it would take to shift direction.
1: I was really struck by sort of the the underlying theme of today's conversation in that creating cultures of respect and how creating a culture like that where you have respect and empathy for everyone doing their jobs and for the system that's doing its job can lead to real solutions and can lead to bringing people together in a way that makes everyone able to contribute fully and opens opportunities for innovation. And I think that's something that each of us can take with us into our work life and our home life, and hopefully also channel into doing some greater good in our communities. I'm curious, Jeff, if people want to donate to your effort, either time or money, how would they go about helping Sketch City?
4: You can just go to sketchcity.org. There's a Slack, a meetup, a GitHub we appreciate all of our contributors from all around the world um but you know first and foremost check out code for america and uh get connected with them so that you can bring civic hacking to your community
1: i hope that our listeners are also inspired to take what they learned from this conversation and apply it and do some good in the world and volunteer and give money if you can't volunteer And I think the conversation that we had today is really, really important, especially not just thinking in terms of disaster relief, but in terms of how each of us can contribute to making our communities better and safer and healthier. We feel very privileged to be able to have the guests that we have on this show and to be able to share these conversations with you. If you would like to ensure that conversations like this continue happening, you can support us on our patreon at patreon.com slash greater than code we're also looking for per show and long-term sponsorships that companies and individuals and conferences can take advantage of if you are interested in a sponsorship opportunity go to greater sponsors thank you so much Jeff. this has been great
0: it was thank you so much
4: appreciate it